Hi, Monique. So here we are back in the kitchen of knowledge. God, I feel like I haven't seen you in six months. <laughs> no, you've seen me in six months, but we've been... Uh, lazy. Not lazy. We've been very busy, and so we apologize because we have been a little remiss in getting out these podcasts. But here we are, back again. We're um, back. Hopefully, you're happy to see us, kind of like a honeymoon. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> Um, so we are here in the Kitchen of Knowledge, and we're actually here on an evening. So Landon's already complained that he hasn't got his blueberry muffins, so he's had to eat just plain blueberries. I was pl promised blueberry muffins tomorrow morning. Yeah, but now we're doing it in the evening. So we're going to start, and we're going to talk a little bit about acetaminophen, aspirin, and NSAIDs. And one of the wonderful benefits of doing this podcast has been connecting with nurses around the world. We love hearing from our listeners, and we love having them give us suggestions for future podcasts because, frankly, it sometimes is a bit challenging thinking of new things. So we're sending a shout-out to Natasha from Australia, who asked if we could review some common medications and the evidence around it. So Hi, Nat Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Um, Natasha is actually studying to be a nurse practitioner in Australia, so uh, good luck with that. So pain management is an important priority for both nurses and patients. And with patients waiting longer in the ED in pain, it is helpful to look at all the options that we have in caring for these patients. We have evolved in our practice where in the past we as nurses were not allowed to give over-the-counter medications like acetaminophen or NSAIDs to treat pain or to give aspirin to patients who are suspected of having a cardiac event without a doctor's order to now having the latitude to use our clinical judgment to provide these medications to patients independently. We do feel that with any kind of practice, it is important for us as nurses to look at the evidence to support it. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the history and pharmacodynamics of painkillers. It sounds like we're like talking about uh, when homeopathy. you were a child. Yeah, thank you very much. I knew that was going to come up, but uh, I tell don't me, think tell my... me about the willow bark that you I learned knew you were to say make. That. I don't think my mother used willow bark. No, uh, but it is one of the earliest painkillers, and extracts uh, of teas of willow bark have been used to treat fever and pain for more than two thousand years. Landon, two thousand. I'm not that old. Unfortunately, the active ingredient, salicylate acid, is very, is very hard on the stomach. In 1897, a German chemist working for the Bayer Company found a way to modify salicylic acid. I think I'm saying it kind of weird, aren't I? I'm totally biting my tongue. I know you are. Salicylic. Salicylic acid. I think you can say salicylic or salicylic. Anyways, it doesn't matter. He found a way to modify... It just gets weird when you add so, the acetyl to it. I if know. If you're saying it differently. Okay. You could be saying it right, but I know what's coming with the acetyl part. I know, okay. Salicylic acid. So it was. Um, so he found a way to modify that acid so it was less irritating to the stomach. And the compound he created, acetyl salicylic... <laughs> This is going to be a problem now. Acetylsalicylic acid, which is called aspirin. Um, it remains the best over-the-counter painkiller until the development of acetaminophen in 1956 and ibuprofen in 1962. I think we should use those because they're easier to say. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, since then, more than a dozen others have come onto the market. In general, all these drugs are non-opiate analgesics. 
The two main categories of commonly used pain analgesics are acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, which can include aspirin and drugs known as COX-2 inhibitors. So let's look at how these work. Mm -hmm. uh, Non-opioid analgesics work by inhibiting the enzyme known as cyclooxygenase, or COX. COX is a catalyst for the conversion of a fatty acid contained in cell walls, arachidonic acid. Very good. You're jealous that I, I can am. just spew these words off, aren't I you? I know. Yeah. They convert arachidonic acid to substances known as prostaglandins, which was my nickname in nursing school. <laughs> was it really? Well, yeah, because it has landin in it. Oh, wow. They call that's me prostaglandin. Prostaglandins. Okay. Prostaglandins serve a number of protective functions in the body, but they can also produce pain, inflammation, and fever. They cause pain and inflammation after cell injury by a number of mechanisms, primarily at the site of the injury in the peripheral nervous system, but also in the central nervous system. They elevate body temperature by affecting the heat regulating center of a region of the brain known as the hypothalamus. By blocking COX and therefore the subsident production of prostaglandins in the central and peripheral nervous systems, non-opioid analgesics reduce both fever and inflammation. That's helpful. Acetaminophen, however, differs from the other non-opioids in that it does not block COX in the peripheral nervous system to an appreciable extent. It appears to reduce pain primarily in the central nervous system by more than one mechanism, possibly in part by inhibiting a form of COX called COX-3, but this is still under a lot of debate. Not sure if it exists as prominently in humans as it does in dogs. At the end of the day, it means that acetaminophen does not possess anti-inflammatory properties, so it may be great for headaches, fever, and minor aches, but won't reduce inflammation due to muscle pain. Yeah. As the class name suggests, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, reduce inflammation but are not related to steroids because those also reduce, reduce inflammation. inflammation yeah. Like acetaminophen, NSAIDs work by reducing the production of prostaglandins. And as we said earlier, prostaglandins are the chemicals that make that inflammation, pain, and fever. They also protect the lining of the stomach and intestines from the damaging effects of acid. That's the prostaglandins do yes. that, not the medications. No. They promote blood clotting by activating blood platelets and promote normal function in the kidneys. So it would make sense that if that's what prostaglandins do, that's why these medications can cause GI bleeding and they kidney. cause some uh, coagulopathies and yeah. kidney problems. I love it when it makes sense. <laughs> the enzymes that produce prostaglandins are called cyclooxygenases. Uh, in the 1990s, it was discovered that there are two forms of cyclooxygenase, COX-1 and COX-2. COX-2 is the one responsible for inflammation. And, we, and you've probably heard these terms before. COX-2 inhibitors yeah. is, is a class of drug. Yeah. COX-1 is known to be present in most of the tissues in the body. In the GI tract, COX-1 maintains the normal lining of the stomach and intestines, protecting the stomach from the digest, digestive juices. The enzyme is also involved in kidney and platelet function. COX-2, on the other hand, is primarily found at sites of inflammation. Both 1 and 2 produce the prostaglandins that contribute to pain, fever, and inflammation. But since COX-1's primary role is to protect the stomach and intestines and contribute to blood clotting, using drugs that inhibit it can lead to GI issues, so GI upside, or GI about. bleeding. Yeah. So, in summary, both NSAIDs and Tylenol block the body's production of prostaglandins. However, while NSAIDs 
sorry, while NSAIDs block prostaglandin production throughout the body, Tylenol appears to just do it in the brain and spinal cord, or the central nervous system. The bottom line about acetaminophen and NSAIDs is that NSAIDs ease pain, lower fever, and turn down inflammation. I guess decreases inflammation. Decrease inflammation. That probably is probably more helpful. That was, yeah. that was you. I know, I'm having, sorry. Having a little bit of a, a writer's moment. Yes, exactly. Uh, they can be very helpful for pain arising from inflammation-related conditions such as arthritis. Acetaminophen eases pain and fever but does nothing about the inflammation. Yeah. So sometimes when you have something like arthritis, mm -hmm. it's probably better to take an anti-inflammatory as right. opposed to acetaminophen. But, of course, there are side effects. Oh, so side that, effects? Yeah, I know. So of that, both of them? Yeah. Tell me about those, I Monique. will indeed. So it's important to note that though we've been taking acetaminophen and NSAID for years, we have to be kind of cognizant of the adverse effects. Um, they work differently and they're cleared from the body by different organs. So acetaminophen is broken down almost completely by the liver and ibuprofen is mostly broken down by the kidneys. So if a patient takes too much acetaminophen, they could run into acute liver damage. Ibupro ibuprofen is very safe on the liver. However, in the stomach, it blocks the action of two chemicals that activate inflammation, prostaglandin and prostacyclin, which can result in irritation of the stomach and esophagus. So long-term use of ibuprofen can cause stomach inflammation like a gastritis and GI bleed. Acetaminophen, on the other hand, is safe on the stomach. So the risk of GI bleeds appear to be highest with catorolac and then in decreasing order, pyroexacane, Indomethacin, naproxen, melozexchem, diclofenac, and ibuprofen. Jeez, that's a lot of drugs that have weird names. It's kind of funny how Ugh. you can totally tell the ones we use in Canada I versus know. the ones we don't. You exactly. rattle half of them off, and then the others you're going, I've never I've heard never of that. I've never heard of them. Yeah, the pyro... Peroxicam. Peroxicam. Uh, that must be a United States one. I know, melox... I don't know those. I don't either. Yeah, Okay. So uh, ibuprofen also dilates the blood vessels entering the kidneys. So taking too much ibuprofen can also cause acute kidney injury. Because of blood pressure increases with all NSAIDs, uh, oh, sorry, beware of blood pressure increases with all NSAIDs except um, aspirin. The effect is strongest and happens most consistently in people who have high blood pressure already and are taking medication to control it. But there's evidence that people with normal blood pressure are also affected. Acetaminophen in high doses may also cause small hikes in your blood pressure. The relative risk of hypertension also varies depending on the specific NSAIDs. So among NSAIDs, naproxen is generally considered the safest NSAID for patients at risk for cardiovascular risk effects. So it's important for us to mention that NSAIDs are contraindicated in the third trimester as it causes closure of the ductus arteriosus in the fetus, which could lead to pulmonary hypertension and possibly congestive heart failure and cardiac arrhythmias in the baby. So it is kind of interesting, isn't it, that when you look at things like Tylenol and ibuprofen or acetaminophen and ibuprofen, that it is... We, we kind of use them so much that it's interesting for me to think about, oh, wait a minute, this might actually have some problems. There, and there may be. not be great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's good for us to know those things. So let's talk about one specific mm -hmm. kind. Because of the GI issues with the NSAIDs, and remember those were the COX-1 yeah. things, in the 1990s a new class of NSAIDs called specific COX-2 inhibitors were developed. Which you mentioned earlier. Right, which in yeah. theory should mean 
It'll only do the inflammation, but not the stomach. Exactly. Uh, they were supposed to be better. They were a bit easier on the GI system, but it turns out they weren't especially heart-friendly. Mm -hmm. The first COX-2 inhibitor, Vioxx, was pulled from marketing in 2004, and Bextra came off a few months later. A third COX-2 inhibitor, Celebrex, has stayed on the market. Mm -hmm. At doses of 200 milligrams a day or less, it does not appear to pose any greater heart attack risk than other NSAIDs. So yes, NSAIDs have been linked to an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. And this is longer term, not yeah. take one aspirin and yeah, you're going to exactly. have a heart attack. It's not clear why NSAIDs increase the risk of heart attack or stroke, but it's likely through the various processes that NSAIDs affect in the body. Researchers looked at study participants' heart health and how often they took NSAIDs and determined that taking any dose of NSAIDs for a week, month, or more than a month was associated with an increased risk of having a heart attack. Risks ranged from 20 to 50% compared to people who didn't take NSAIDs. And the risk level increased, sorry, increased as quickly as one week into the use of any NSAIDs. Here's an important point. The study was observational yeah. and was not causational meaning this doesn't definitively say ibuprofen causes heart attacks. Instead, it means the scientists simply observed that people who took NSAIDs had a higher risk of heart attacks. They found an association, not causation-based proof, that NSAIDs are bad news for your heart. Yeah. And so that's, that's always an important thing. Like, they didn't necessarily analyze if, you know, half of the study group had all eaten you know, fatty food for that exactly. whole month or, or whatever. Or, so, or had other risks of having heart disease right. and on top of it, they were also taking NSAIDs and, right? Like, so maybe they were, had high blood pressure or they had high cholesterol. That that wasn't it. But it's always mm -hmm. interesting. Um, but you do hear some people go, oh, it's bad for my heart. And so it is important for us to kind of recognize that. What's interesting, though, is we're talking about NSAIDs. Yeah. Of which ASA is an NSAID. Yeah, so we are going to talk about that. We say that it's bad for your heart, yes. but we put people on it every day yes. who have cardiac issues, yes. and it's the first thing we give you if you're having a heart attack. So interesting that you would bring that up, because we are now going to talk about... That totally wasn't scripted, by the way. <laughs> I know, you just suddenly <laughs> thought about it, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And so since we are on the but subject... But it is the next thing you're going to talk yeah. about. Yeah. So since we're on the subject of heart disease, we should talk about aspirin and the ARRIVE study. So aspirins used for preventing cardiovascular events have been controversial, but most physicians suggest that patients who are at risk for heart attacks or stroke take a baby aspirin every day or two. Um, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends the following use of low-dose aspirins. One, for the prevention of cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancers in adults aged 50 to 59 years who have a 10% or greater 10-year cardiac risk and not an increased risk for bleeding. Two, the evidence for prevention is weaker for people aged 60 to 69. They said that the decision should be an individual one. And three, there is insufficient evidence for the use of aspirin for primary prevention in adults younger than 50 or older than 70. So what that actually is doing, it's um, the ARRIVE study actually stands for the aspirin to reduce risk of initial vascular events. It was initiated about 10 years ago to study whether aspirin would reduce the risk of an initial cardiovascular event in patients thought to be at moderate cardiovascular risk. So we're not talking about people who've had a heart attack or a stroke. We're looking at people who may have a risk of developing those things um, by looking at different risk scales, okay? 
So a total of 12,000 adults with one or more risk factors for a coronary event were put into the study. They had never experienced an event previously, and they were given a daily dose of 100 milligrams of aspirin. Overall, after an average of five years of following these patients, the trial did not show a significant benefit for aspirin, though there was a significant increase in GI bleeding. There was no significant difference in the rates of death, heart attacks, or stroke. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. I find that quite interesting. But I think it's not time to throw away the no, aspirin just not yet. not at all. Because there's a few things to think about with this study. Uh, one, the participants of the trial turned out to be at a lower risk, less than 9%, than that which was calculated for the group, which yeah. was 17%. Right. There was an improvement in the efficacy of medications for high blood pressure and cholesterol during the interval of the trial. Yeah. So that was 2009 to 2017. So this could be responsible for the difference. We mm -hmm. have better medications now. It's unclear whether the dose was high enough to make a difference. A daily dose of 325 has also been recommended. Mm -hmm. Not typically what we see in Canada. We typically see the 81 milligrams. Yeah, exactly. And while the study made it fairly clear that baby aspirin is not effective in protecting this group of people from heart attacks, this does not mean aspirin at a different dose will not work. So the 81 to 325 yeah. is what we're talking about. Yeah. There were, there were some limitations in this trial. Of course, every study has to have, yeah. you know, you, you have to draw some lines around the study somewhere. Patients with diabetes were not included. That's mm -hmm. a, a big group, risk yeah, group exactly. there. However, a separate randomized trial called the ASCEND trial was presented at the European Society of Cardiology Conference. And this study did find a significant reduction in adverse cardiovascular outcomes with daily aspirin in people with diabetes, though there was also a similar magnitude of increased major bleeding. Back to the ARRIVE trial, there was only 100 events in both groups, less than half of what was originally calculated. There may not be sufficient data to conclude positively that there was no benefit in baby aspirin. And it really didn't look at whether it could conceivably work for people in higher risk groups, such as those who'd already had heart attacks, as this group was not the intended subject. So it's really, this is a very narrow group of yeah. people that looked at this. And it's important that when, why we're spending a lot of time on this is it kind of came out of in the media and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. of, there's this new study, don't take aspirin anymore. Yeah. It's like, okay, as with everything in medicine. Yeah, exactly. There yeah. are some people that it will apply to and some people won't. <laughs> exactly. So despite that for decades, a daily dose of aspirin was considered an easy way to prevent a heart attack, stroke, or other cardiovascular event, with the latest research in mind, the 2019 American Heart Association and American Card College of Cardiology presented a new set of prevention guidelines with one part looking at aspirin use. The recommendation states that based on the level of current data, the guideline recommends against aspirin use among patients aged greater than 70 years as well as adults who are at risk of bleeding. The use of prophylactic aspirin in the middle-aged adults is now considered a class 2b recommendation. And I'll explain what 2B is, for those of you who don't know, in a minute. But okay. first, I will actually read the guideline. The complexity of assessing risk and benefit related to prophylactic aspirin use in individual patients mandates thorough assessment of cardiovascular risk and bleeding risk and re-emphasizes the importance of shared decision-making. So really what that's saying is mm -hmm. talk to your patient and make a decision yeah. case by case. Exactly. There is insufficient evidence for the use of aspirin for primary prevention in adults younger than 50 or older than 70. That's pretty well a conclusion. Yeah, there. I think so. 
Okay, so a little side note, what does class 2B means? Class 2B is a weak recommendation. It suggests that the recommendation may or might be reasonable or may slash might be considered and the usefulness or effectiveness is unknown slash unclear slash uncertain or not well established. <laughs> so not a great recommendation. So it's, it's weak. <laughs> Very weak. That's why we call it weak. Exactly. But we do kind of need to make a couple of things. Now we need to pick out the yeah. patients who need to have it. Still right? need to have aspirin. Exactly. Are you doing it? No, you are. Okay, so the new recommendation doesn't apply to people who already have had a stroke or a heart attack or who have undergone bypass surgery or procedure like a stent, right? So those patients, we are still saying, continue to take low-dose aspirin daily or as recommended by their healthcare professional because we haven't studied that group at all. And we need to be clear that we are still, in big, bold words and letters, we are still strongly recommending that aspirin should be given in patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain, which is likely cardiac in nature. This, this is a totally different group totally now. Totally different. So don't, don't leave here saying, oh my gosh, Monique and Landis said don't give aspirin. If somebody comes in, you think they're having uh, an NSTEMI or a STEMI, Give them aspirin. Their large randomized clinical trials, trials have shown that if aspirin is used soon after the onset of an acute heart attack, the mortality rate after five weeks is reduced by as much as 23%. So just as importantly, clinical trials have strongly suggested that the early administration of aspirin can substantially reduce the size of the MI or convert a heart attack to unstable angina, or convert an ST elevation um, MI or a STEMI to a non-STEMI. So all these benefits um, can greatly diminish the amount of heart damage and can greatly diminish or even estimate the long-term disability. So aspirin, even at small doses, can rapidly and powerfully inhibit the activity of the platelets and therefore can inhibit the growth of the blood clot. Inhibiting that blood clot is critical, so you maintain blood flow through the coronary artery, keep your heart muscle cells from dying. So that is why nurses should be supported in independently giving aspirin in patients with a presumed MI as soon as possible without waiting for a physician's order. Absolutely. Okay. So. Okay. So there we go. Okay. Heart aspirin. attacks. Heart attacks over. Yes. Now I can talk about aspirin. Back to normal pain. Yeah. <laughs> so now we need to, you know, I think it's always important to talk about aspirin because even though it sits in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, aspirin's kind of on its own, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't usually have somebody who has a headache or arthritis and they reach and for we aspirin. we give you aspirin. Yeah, we either give you acetaminophen Well, we did in the 50s maybe. Probably. Yeah. Back when I was a child, I'm sure. Actually, I was child, not born in the 50s. Child, you were 50s. a nurse already. No, I was not. Rudeness. On a last note, we wanted to kind of talk about taking acetaminophen and ibuprofen together. So can they be combined safely? So yes, this combination is very safe. They work differently. They're cleared from the body by different organisms or organisms by different organs. Acetaminophen can put some stress on the liver and um, ibuprofen puts some stress on the stomach and kidneys. But if you're using these drugs in safe amounts, there's a minimal concern here. In fact, the two together work better than either one alone. There are three ways to do this. Taking NSAID, the NSAID and Tylenol on alternate days, especially for chronic pain, is easier in your stomach and liver than taking either or both drugs daily. 
but the degree of pain relief may be insufficient. So you can kind of do it that way. Taking the NSAID and Tylenol at the same time will give better superior pain relief than in scenario one, but it may wear off before it's time for the next dose in four to six hours. Alternating the two drugs, for example, the NSAIDs at zero, four, and eight hours, plus the Tylenol at two, six, and 10 hours will produce a more sustained level of pain relief. In fact, I find this quite interesting. When we compare opiates and the acetaminophen plus ibuprofen combo, the results might actually surprise us. So there are several Cochrane reviews that have examined the treatment of post-op pain. And post-op pain is kind of always studied because it's an example of acute pain where there has been some tissue trauma resulting in pain. And also, it's always in a controlled environment, so you can kind of rigorously research it. So the results of the reviews are this. If you give a patient oxycodone 15 milligrams, the number to treat is 4.6, which means that you would have to treat 46 people for 10 to get 50% relief of their pain. Perhaps more importantly, 36 out of 46 people would not get any kind of adequate pain relief. Oxycodone 10 plus acetaminophen 650, which is kind of the same as two Percocets, the number to treat is 2.7. Clearly, this is better than oxycodone alone, so the acetaminophen adds a significant benefit. Naproxen 500, the number to treat for this is also 2.7. Now, bear in mind that naproxen is not an opiate. Right. It is an NSAID. Now, ibuprofen plus acetaminophen, the combination of these two over-the-counter medicines provided the best pain relief of all with a number to treat of 1.6. That's amazing. And no opioids. Exactly. And with this whole opiate crisis uh, that we are experiencing, when you actually see what the research shows, why would you need to give somebody an opiate? And it's three times better. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So quite amazing. That's interesting. I think that's pretty darn amazing. The only risk with this Mm -hmm. is it takes a lot of coaching with patients, I've found. Because you can't tell them to take two Tylenol and two ibuprofen every four hours because they're going to hit the maximum daily dose. Yeah. And so just... It takes a little more work. Yeah. It's way better. But yeah. And I actually sit with patients and I, I map it out for them. Yeah, so do I. And, and, and I like I, the zero to... Um, yeah, I like that. Uh, you know, the combo so that every two hours you're taking either something. a Tylenol yeah. or an acetaminophen. Oh, sorry, acetaminophen or uh, NSAID. And that actually gives you a better coverage over time. So quite interesting. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, in conclusion... There's lots of things to say. Isn't there's, there? there's a lot of conclusions yeah. we've drawn. I know. Uh, evidence supports that when nurses give patients with pain acetaminophen and ibuprofen before they are assessed by a physician or nurse practitioner, their pain will already have been addressed safely and more effectively. And this has more importance than we think. Yeah. Because one of the large predictors in violence in the emergency department is people not having their pain addressed. Exactly. So if you can pop these into them at triage, and then they're waiting an hour to see a doctor or whatever, Yeah, their pain's gone. Exactly. So it's not as big of a deal. Yeah. The risk being their pain gets taken care of and they, they leave. leave. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line about acetaminophen and NSAIDs is that NSAIDs ease pain, lower fever, and turn down inflammation. I don't know why. I don't That's know why you wrote that. Weird turn it down. down. Turn down the inflammation. Uh, they can be helpful for pain arising from inflammation-related conditions, such as arthritis. 
Acetaminophen eases pain and fever, but does not affect the inflammation. Mm -hmm. So use your brains. Yes, exactly. Acetaminophen is broken down almost completely by the liver and ibuprofen uh, by the kidneys. There are more GI upsets with NSAIDs. NSAIDs can affect blood pressure. Naproxen is generally considered the safest NSAID for patients at risk for cardiovascular side effects. NSAIDs are contraindicated in the third trimester of pregnancy. There is insufficient evidence now for the use of aspirin for primary prevention in adults younger than 50 or older than 70. So we're talking about primary prevention, people who have not had, Never had anything an event. Yeah. And are not having one now. Yes. Aspirin should be given in patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain, which is likely cardiac in nature. Pretty much. That's what, it. Yeah, I know. Look at that. I know. We Thank still you, managed Natasha. to talk for half an hour despite <laughs> our six-month vacation from I know. each other. And we do thank you, Natasha, because that was really interesting for us to actually look at the evidence mm -hmm. in something that we maybe take for granted um, and ourselves consume as, you know, taking acetaminophen and NSAIDs for pain for ourselves. So this has really been very helpful. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Talk okay. to you next month. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, Ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca